0: Thanks to Seinfeld, the words yada yada have become a well-used phrase since 1997. Seinfeld wasn't the first to use it, but it will forever be associated with the misadventures of Jerry and his three friends. Now, characters in the episode, if you're not aware, they use the term yada yada to skip over various details when they're telling a story to someone, usually because those details revealed things they didn't want the people around them to know about. As the scenes unfold, though, the comedy builds because characters are left to speculate about what the various yada-yada's passed over. Now, in Acts 18, Luke, our writer, is relaying a new chapter in the story of Paul's work in Greece. And we find him in a new city, the city of Corinth. And as the story is told, we'll find that Luke sort of passes over a lot of details, Details about background, details about things going on in the minds of our characters, just some various details. And as a result, if you read commentaries or sermons about this passage, there is a lot of speculation uh, when studying the text. Now, obviously, these verses are written exactly the way God wanted them written, okay? We can be sure of that. We don't need to fret as if we're missing something essential. At the same time, If you do read different Bible scholars or Bible commentators who talk about passages, uh, when they get to these verses, you're going to find all sorts of speculation and guys landing all over the place uh, with each and every verse almost. Here are a few items that aren't agreed upon. Why Paul left, left Athens and after how long? whether Priscilla and Aquila were Christians before they met Paul or not, whether they met Paul for the first time in the city of Corinth or whether they were already acquainted, whether Paul was being bold to preach the gospel in the first four verses, or whether he was cowering in fear and just doing the bare minimum, whether Gallio was a just judge or whether he was yet another unscrupulous Roman official, whether it was Gentiles who beat Sosthenes at the end of our passage or whether it was his own Jewish countrymen. So there's just kind of a lot of gaps in uh, the details. Now the gaps in detail are not bad, but they do leave sort of a lot of room for interpretation or filling in the blanks. And really, it's surprising that this story has gaps like that because this story is the setup for such a significant part of Paul the Apostle's ministry life and a significant portion of the New Testament. I mean, if we pause and think about the Corinthians and the Corinthian church and the work that's getting started here, and then think about the amount of biblical real estate that is given to this city and these group of believers, it's kind of interesting A lot of the Bible, a lot of the New Testament is dedicated to Paul's relationship with these people in the city of Corinth. We have no letter to the Athenians, right? We have no letter to the Bereans. I'm sure he wrote to them, but the New Testament cares a lot about what's going on here, and this is a setup for it, and yet, sort of a lot of redacted material, we might say. In this text, we also get the sense as we read through it that something is not quite right with our dear Paul, or at least that things are not going as usual for him uh, in his heart and in his mind. We We don't wanna speculate too much, but there's enough here that we can say things are not quite right. He's isolated, he's run out of provision and supply, but it's more than that. He is discouraged. He himself describes how he was feeling later in one of those letters to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, he says this, I came to you in uh, weakness, timid, and trembling. That's how he assesses himself looking back. It's hard to imagine the Apostle Paul as frightened, but he was. He just was. Uh, The man who could stare down Caesar Nero and uh, be stoned to death and beaten and whipped and dragged into dungeons and shipwrecked over and over again. Can you even imagine the Apostle Paul uh, being timid and being afraid? Uh, and yet he was. He says so himself. And he was to so profound a degree, apparently, that the Lord Jesus seems to think that it's necessary for him to come down and appear to him personally there in Corinth and to tell him outright, don't be afraid, don't be silent, and don't worry about being harmed in this city. Pretty remarkable if we think about it and if we think about how we usually characterize Paul in our minds. Now, Paul may have been feeling very low, but by the grace of God, He, a lot of wonderful things are about to happen. Uh, You know, he is in this rough state. He's out of money. Uh, He's by himself. He's clearly super discouraged, even afraid. And apparently, you know, Jesus Christ doesn't waste words, right? So if Jesus comes to you and says, don't be afraid and don't be silent, we have to assume that's because Paul was thinking, maybe, maybe I'm done preaching in this city, Right? And that's not too much speculation. That's not too much of a leap, I don't think. And so despite all of that, we're gonna see that by the grace of God, Paul was about to make some of the most meaningful friendships of his life and accomplish some really powerful ministry, which through the epistles have ongoing repercussions all over the earth for thousands of years, right? So from that state of weakness and timidity and fear uh, and, and just that trembling, We can look forward through history and see, but here's what God did at that starting point. Here's what God was able to do even in that weakness. I mean, man, we believe the Lord when he says his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So though we may wish for a few more background details, here's what we can know. First, we know that even the strongest of Christians can fall into really deep discouragement uh, discouragement is real, and no one is immune from it. No one is above it. I don't think there's any Christian anywhere who can say, well, I've never been discouraged, never been discouraged about the state of the world, never been discouraged about my own personal spiritual life, never been discouraged about how I'm serving the Lord, or how the Lord is, is speaking to me, and those sorts of things. And, you know, if you're feeling that way tonight, you're in really great company. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, was much more discouraged than than a lot of us are tonight, right? And some of us are very discouraged, I'm sure, tonight, and we're praying for you, and God uh, knows about it, and He loves you, and He's not mad that you're discouraged, right? And, and this is something that happens, not just to some Christians who can't hang. That's not the case at all. We're talking about Paul the Apostle here. And so the strongest of Christians can fall into discouragement, but no matter how discouraged you are, no matter how isolated you are, no no matter how out of supply or provision you are, no matter how frightened you are of what's coming, you may be and you can be built back up in the grace of God because our Lord has not abandoned you. And one more thing we can be sure of from this story is that no no matter how bad the place, no matter how threatening the situation, God can accomplish really wonderful and powerful things. He can transform lives. He can make a difference. He did it before. He wants to do it still. So let's get into verse one. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Uh, We don't know why Paul left Athens Things weren't particularly volatile uh, when chapter 17 came to a close, but at some point he did leave and he left alone by himself completely. Corinth was an absolutely trashy city if there ever was one. I don't know what you think is the trashiest city in the world. I'm sure that there's a few contenders on most of our list, Uh, but we know that certain cities have a reputation. And if any city ever had a reputation for trashiness, it's the city of Corinth. It was known to be a city of vice, not just by the church, not just by Christians, but by everybody in the Greek world. It had a pagan temple that employed a thousand prostitutes. Even among the heathens, Corinth was a place known for drunkenness, immorality, all sorts of poor behavior. It's recorded by historians that if in a Greek theater, a character in a play was ever Corinthian, he had to appear drunk, or he was always drunk, because because in Corinth, stuff like that was just going down all the time. So this is where Paul finds himself on his own, and apparently out of money and food and shelter, because he has to get a job. It's another thing I don't really think about the Apostle Paul having to do very often, but he had to get a job. Not because he was dying to do more leather work or tent making, but because... He's homeless in the trashiest city in the kingdom, right? So, verse 2 He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. What does it mean that Paul found them? Well, again, we have to fill in the blanks ourselves a bit, but clearly, Paul needed a job and shelter. He didn't know anybody in Corinth. There were no Christians waiting for him that would help him out or support him or anything like that, and he's on his own. So it's probable that he answered like an ad or went to the tent shop and inquired of whether they needed an extra hand. And there, as they talked, they would have quickly figured out that they were both Jews and that they got on well. The question is was this couple already Christian when Paul met them? We can't be sure. It seems like sort of common sense to me that Dr. Luke would have relayed the story if Paul led them to Christ uh, the way he did in the case of Lydia, for example, right, a few chapters ago. We just aren't sure. But what we do know is that this seemingly chance encounter is the start of one of the richest relationships of Paul's life. They're going to become really dear friends and helpers, partners in ministry with Paul. And Paul's the kind of guy that could probably use a really good friend. Uh, Paul is the kind of guy that, I don't know if you have somebody who just has a really rough go at life. And Paul had a rough go at life, not because of his own choices, but because of the persecution and opposition that he faced because of his many sufferings for the sake of Jesus Christ. The dude needed friends. And oftentimes, uh, it was hard for him to, well, we see that rather than be uh, wildly popular, most places he goes, people are trying to kill him. Or most places he goes, a group of people are following after him to say, that guy's lying, that guy's lying, he doesn't know what he's talking about, those sorts of things. Even when he hangs with the rest of the uh, you know, 11 disciples, the rest of the 12 who are alive, right? It's clear that there's not just a, a super tight bond. And so um, friendship was important, and this is one of the most important that he would make, as far as we know, in the Bible. And so, amazing. Uh, Of course, it wasn't a chance encounter, right? It was providence. There's Paul, God's servant, in a strange city, packed with people. At least 200,000 people lived there, according to historians. Uh, He's got no money. He's got nowhere to live. He doesn't know anyone. And what does God do? Directs him to a shop where he can not only be supplied with work and shelter, but also where he will find a, a new lifelong friendship with this couple. Who are like-minded with him who love the lord like he does who follow after god and believe in truth what an amazing thing in the christian life we want to develop a greater and greater openness to receive from the lord and to be positioned by the lord so that he can do great things like this for us if our heads are always down if we're always looking in Uh, if we feed selfishness or cynicism or skepticism all the time in our hearts, then it's going to sort of make us very brittle when God tries to form us and shape us. You know, the Bible uses this image that we're living stones and that we are fit together in particular ways. And we've talked about this a little bit in our study in the Psalms and uh, recently on Sunday mornings. But as the Lord fits us together, that means he's doing certain molding and shaving and chipping away and and he's fashioning us so that we as actual people here in Kings County at Calvary Hanford can actually be knit together life to life and heart to heart so that we can um, encourage one another and support one another and be supported and all of those sorts of things. But if we're always looking in and if we're always kind of being closed off, closed off to others, you know, uh, cynical in our mind, and, and those sorts of things, then we become brittle and it makes it a lot harder for God to form and shape us. What did he say to Saul of Tarsus on the road? He says, you know what you're doing? You're kicking against the goads. Now, uh, Saul at that time was not a believer in Jesus Christ, but it gives us that image that God is saying, hey, I have a path, I have a way, I have some steps I want you to take. We want to go this way And we need to get you aligned. Any of your cars need alignment right now? Your wheels, like, turned, like, 35 degrees. You're like, it's fine. Your tires are all wearing on one side, right? You need to be aligned so that we're not fighting against that and not always drifting, right? And so it's going to make it very difficult for us to receive some of the wonderful gifts God would like to give us if we are hard-hearted and if we're closed off to everybody, right? Right? In America, we're very um, individualistic and in times like this, everybody's all stressed out and things like that, but we don't want to be closed off to especially the brothers and sisters around us because God might be trying to introduce you to your next lifelong friend, somebody who's actually going to walk with you through life for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years and bring a richness and a value to your life that you wouldn't have known otherwise. And so we want to cultivate that kind of spiritual openness. Now we learned something about Paul here, something biographical. He was a tent maker. He probably made all sorts of leather goods, but tent making would have been a big part of it. A couple of things here. First of all, in our culture, there's kind of been a long divide between blue-collar work and white-collar work, and that's not really a good thing. Uh, you look at Paul. I mean, nobody was more educated than Paul. He had a very high level of education, that's great. His original plan had been to be someone who thought and studied for a living, you know, uh, someone who was a scholar and a, and a you know, deep academic, a, a philosopher, and a lawyer kind of person, right? Uh, but at the same time, In the Hebrew culture, you always learn to trade so that you could support yourself. And for you young people here tonight, I'd highly recommend that type of mentality. No matter what you want to be when you grow up or whatever plan you're kind of aiming towards, I just encourage you, equip yourself with some sort of skill, some sort of trade. It doesn't have to mean that you have to learn how to um, you know, become a miner or anything like that, but applying Yourself to some sort of skill that could be used uh, for self-support. Particularly if you think you want to go into the ministry or to full-time missions work, uh, we don't want to turn our nose up at skills or trade because, after all, that's manual work. That's that's you know we don't we don't do that. Uh, we see Paul; he's the smartest, most educated guy in the room, and he's you know, working with leather, maybe skin and goats to be able to make tents. It's kind of an interesting thought. But second, this sort of spoke to me the other day. As tent makers, Paul and Aquila and Priscilla would be supplying product and services to all sorts of people, Corinthian people, uh, including Roman soldiers. They would need tents, uh, according to the scholars. Now, we live in a time when everyone wants to boycott everyone else. Everybody's boycotting everybody. I don't know how anybody's buying food or wearing clothes or anything like that, but everybody wants to boycott everybody, right? doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on or what the issue is. And we live also in a time where more and more, you know, we hear news of people refusing to serve others in their business because of their politics or their values or their job or whatever, those sorts of things. Now, pause. Can you imagine a Roman soldier coming into the tent shop one day, and Paul saying, I refuse to make a tent for somebody like you, empire scum. Also, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves you so much he died for you. But take that message and then get out, you know? (laughs) If you don't like it, unfollow me. Like, can you imagine? I can't imagine Paul doing that. Now listen, if you have a personal conviction from the Lord about particular products or companies that you don't wanna support, that's your business, and that's the Lord's business, right? Holy Spirit's gonna direct people to do those sorts of things, that's fine. But let's, as a group, generally speaking, not just jump onto every anger bandwagon. There's a lot of anger bandwagons and we don't need to jump on all of them. Be gracious, be led, be directed by God, not by any crowd, uh, no matter who they're voting for or what they're into. Verse four, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. We see a term like reasoned there, and it's easy to think that it means he was giving them you know, doctoral thesis level lectures and intricate logic and all sorts of academic genius, but that's not what's happening at all, not even a little bit. In fact, here's what was happening. Paul himself says this, 1 Corinthians 2, "'When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, "'I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom "'to tell you God's secret plan, I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than use clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. The most basic message, the most basic Christian heraldry, the message, That Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, came and lived a perfect life, died on a Roman cross, and then three days later rose from the dead so that all who believe on him and call on his name will receive everlasting life. That most basic gospel message, and we could even strip down a bunch of vocabulary words out of that, that is enough to make a difference in the life of your family member, in the life of Hanford in the world. It is enough. Is there more to talk about? Of course there is. Are there intricate doctrines that we can you know, uh, lay out in front of people as they're searching after the Lord or as they wanna learn more about Christianity and who Jesus was? Of course, no one's saying anything different. But that most basic message, Jesus is God, came, lived, died, rose again, because you're a sinner and need salvation. And if you believe on him and, and call on his name, you will be saved. That most basic message is enough for every problem in the world, every single one. And Paul the apostle is living proof of that. You take a guy who is a complete racist. He was a murderer. He made it his business to go and butcher people, tear apart families, ruin people who were minding their own business. That's who he was. He's a religious terrorist, and Jesus encounters him, and he says, I'm a savior, you're a sinner, you need to be saved, and the next day, he's no longer a religious terrorist right? He didn't need a program in order to be deprogrammed or anything like that, right? He just needed an actual encounter with the living Christ. And he needed to understand that there was a Savior and that he was a sinner. And so lots of complicated, difficult issues in the world today, lots of complicated and difficult issues facing you among your own family circles today. Lots of history, I'm sure, and people bringing up all sorts of other things, but we should take comfort in the way that Paul carried himself in in this time in his life, he says, I didn't use any lofty words. I didn't use anything complicated. I wasn't doing any sort of you know syllabus. I just was talking to you about Jesus Christ and him crucified because that is the answer and that is enough to make a difference. It doesn't matter the problem. It doesn't matter the person. It doesn't matter the place. It's enough. And from there, God has more truth and more wisdom and more direction for individuals and for communities, but that is enough. And so when we look out at the world around us, at notorious places, Corinths of the day, and we say, man, you know, cities like that need real intervention, they need need something. As we look around the world and we see, you know, cities full of sin and ruined lives, what do they need? They don't need hatred from us, they need the message of the cross, the good news of that one magnificent three-day weekend that changed everything, right? a three-day weekend that really ended really well for everybody. And so that's what um, our families need. That's what our communities need. That's what the world needs. Because from there, when a person surrenders their life to Christ, then God takes the reins of their life, right, and starts directing them. He starts using providence to Flow them into position, right? And how many examples of this do we have to see over and over again, whether it's, you know, a centurion like Cornelius or whether it's these other people who they live a certain way and then they encounter the living God and then they don't live that way anymore. In fact, they're living in a way that cares for others and does what is right and walks in integrity. Man, look at Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, He's the grossest, most worst, most wicked man in the whole, 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 whole world. And then one day, he learns about Daniel's God. And it was a slow process for him, but one day he turns around and he realizes, you know what, I need to give honor to the God of heaven and earth and now let me write a gospel tract and send it all over the world to everybody in my kingdom. That's what we're talking about. Verse five, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to the preaching of the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Nothing wrong with working a regular job, even if you're a minister, Paul proves that, but in his particular situation, I think we'd all agree that we would rather have him preaching theology than patching a tent on a given day, right? Right? and and of course we would now we know that he kept um, supporting himself and working i mean he didn't just rest all the time he was a hard worker all the time Um, but we're glad that these other two guys came and were able to supply what paul needed so that he didn't have to work for himself especially because paul almost never got to stay anywhere for very long it's usually a few weeks or so in a place and then he was getting run out on a rail And so Silas and Timothy arrive and are able to support Paul so that he could focus on the ministry, and that's a very good thing. As Christians, we should work so that we can financially support ministry, not only our own ministries that God calls us to, but other individuals and organizations that are proclaiming the gospel. And so allow the Lord and the Holy Spirit to direct you in that. In Luke's description of Paul's message, we notice two things. First, that as always, Paul's message was based upon the revealed word of God. That's what he was preaching to them. Not trend, not opinion, not human philosophy, not what might sound good. What has God said in the scripture, let me tell you. That's what his message was about. Second, we see there blazing off the page. Jesus is the Messiah. He's not just a wise teacher. He's not just a good man. He's not just a great example of selfless living. He is the Messiah meaning he and he alone is king, is savior, is the anointed one. He is the decider for your life and my life and the life of everybody on the earth. And we all are to bow our knees before our king, the king of kings, and acknowledge who he really is, that he is Messiah and Lord. And when people talk about Jesus being a great philosopher, no, you're wrong. He is the Messiah, and that means a great deal more. Verse six, when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood is on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. There are two powerful realities on display here. First of all, you are responsible for your own spiritual health. No one can be saved for you. No one can obey God for you. No one can respond to the offer of Jesus Christ for you. Your faith is an individual relationship with God and you are responsible to respond accordingly. But second, since most of us are believers here, Christians are also, we find, responsible to preach to the lost. So the lost are responsible. You are responsible for your personal faith and your, inner, your interaction and relationship with God. You can't just say, well, somebody else did it for me, right? Paul says, hey, no, that is on you as an individual. But simultaneously, we also learn here, not just here, but also in the Old Testament, that God's people are responsible to preach to the lost. Paul is probably referencing here a passage in Ezekiel, kind of a chilling passage. This is Ezekiel 33, starting in verse three. When the watchman sees the enemy coming, he sounds the alarm to warn the people. Then if those who hear the alarm refuse to take action, it is their own fault if they die. They heard the alarm, but ignored it. So the responsibility is theirs. If they had listened to the warning, they could have saved their lives. But if the watchman sees the enemy coming and doesn't sound the alarm to warn the people, he is responsible for their captivity. They will die in their sins, but I will hold the watchman responsible for their deaths. That's what God told Ezekiel when he said, by the way, you're gonna go preach my word to the people. That should be a sobering and a stirring message for us. What Paul said, what God said to Ezekiel, that we are to be about the Lord's business when it comes to evangelism. We are commanded to preach the gospel, to make disciples. That doesn't mean all of us are gifted as evangelists, but all of us are to do the work of an evangelist on some level or another. While Paul's message to these Jews seems harsh on the page, seems final, we know that it was neither of those things, really. He still loved them. Paul said he would rather go to hell himself if the Jews could be saved. He loved his people, that's why he kept going to synagogue after synagogue after synagogue. And we know that he wasn't shutting the door on ever talking to them again. You know, if someone sent you that in a text message, you're like, well, delete that thread, we're done talking to this guy. But that's not a final thing that he's saying, and we know it is not the end of his work with the Jews in the city, because look at the next verse. So he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. I love that. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. There's something comical about the fact that he set up shop next door. That's it. I'm shaking the dust off. Your blood's on your head. And he gathered up his things. This isn't how it happened. He gathered up his things, and he walked down and just went right there next door hey, you guys, had his coffee there in the morning, giving them a friendly wave. Hey, it's me, I'm here. I've got office hours all day, right? And so, uh, in fact, he did more than wave from the front porch. He continued sharing Jesus with any of the faithful Jews who came to hear. And one of them was the dude in charge of the synagogue. And that guy became a Christian, and he said, I've decided to follow Jesus. I guess that's the end of me being in charge of the synagogue. And he gave that up. Uh, but he gained so much more in return. So far, we've seen not only the power of God's providence, but we also can see just how usable a human life can be in God's hands let's just kind of think through all that's happened here. Your words can be used, our work can be used, our financial contributions can be used, our homes can be used, all for the furtherance of the gospel. God can take any aspect of your life, unless that aspect is sinful, but God can take any aspect of your life and apply it to his purpose, and that is an exciting thought. When we were studying the life of Daniel, we found that God can even take the look on your face and accomplish something through it, your countenance. And so, that's an exciting thing to think about. We also learn here that opposition is no reason to quit. The Jews had responded to Paul with an organized resistance, but he didn't quit. He did have to pivot. He pivoted over, but he continued the work, though it seems he was having a hard time with it. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Paul in the night vision, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, don't be silent for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. In this city, why Corinth and not Athens? I mean, some people got saved in Athens, but, but Jesus is making a special point here. Why Corinth and not Athens? Why Costa Mesa and not Santa Monica, right? Why, why, why this place and not the other?" Those are questions we can't answer, we just can't. Instead of getting into arguments about election, we better, we'd be better used by God if we assumed that God has many people in Hanford and go out and work the field, right? The truth is, God does have many people all around us and right now they are trapped in sin and trapped in guilt and trapped in the lies of the enemy and we are sent to courageously be a part of the liberation effort. On the devotional level, If you're afraid tonight, facing some unknown thing, some hard situation, take heart and recognize that even the apostle Paul got afraid sometimes and that's okay, but don't stay afraid. Take courage in the Lord and hold fast to him because the Lord knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly how you feel and he has a word for you, a living word from his scripture. And God not only has a word, he has promises for us. He has provision for us. He has limitless supplies of grace and strength and so be of good cheer. Verse 11, Paul stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. Paul obeyed and stayed much longer there than he was usually able to. Now, of course, we know that just because the Lord had many people in that city didn't mean it would be easy. The work was hard and worthwhile. And even after Paul left, his interactions with the people of Corinth continued to be hard. It was a tough ministry, uh, but fruitful. Verse 12, While Galileo was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, wait just a minute. Didn't Jesus say, no one will lay a hand on you? What gives? Seems like they did here. Did that promise expire after 18 months? Is this like a milk jug promise? What's the deal? Do you ever wonder if God's promises really apply to you? You read these things in the word, you read these declarations about who God is and what he promises, and do you ever find yourself thinking, yeah, but not for me. That's not how it works out for me. Now, sometimes, listen, Christians take biblical promises for themselves that do not belong to them, right? Promises to Israel, for example. So we do wanna be careful students of the Bible and contextual students of the Bible and be sure we understand what is and is not promised to us. But when God has promised something, it is sure and true. Thanks to Jesus, all God's promises to us are yes and amen, the Bible says. The truth is Paul wouldn't be hurt in this, but that doesn't mean there was no opposition. In this case, there was an official trial before a Roman judge named Gallio. And so uh, we wanna be careful students of the promises of God, but really believe in them when we see them written to us. Verse 14, as Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or of a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. And so he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized Sosthenes, excuse me, the leader of the synagogue and beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Gallio. That's quite a Judge Wapner, if I ever saw one right there. (laughs) Judge Judy, sorry, everybody else. Some some commentators commend Galileo, saying he's a shining example of the separation of church and state. One commentator who we really love wrote that, and I thought, what are you talking about? But (laughs) others say, well, he was being wonderfully impartial, right, I don't know, it doesn't seem like that's the sense Luke is giving. Instead, we see a man here who could care less, He doesn't bother to differentiate between Christianity and Judaism. He sees a man being violently beaten, assaulted in his own courtroom. That's not allowed. He just lets it happen. He doesn't care. History, uh, historical records tell us that Galileo was not a well man. He was dying of consumption. What a sad missed opportunity. God in his mercy allowed a situation in which this terminal non-believer would have the chance to hear from the great apostle. He came to his job that day. But none of these things mattered to Gallio, didn't even let him talk. He would have heard what was going on with Paul. I mean, this, these guys are in charge of knowing what's up. And he's, he would have heard the stories. Have you heard about this guy who's going from city to city? Have you heard the things that are happening? Have you heard about how people's lives are being changed and he didn't even bother to let him speak? None of these things mattered to Galileo. As one commentator put it, it matters to him now. And we need to uh, help persuade people to allow these spiritual things, this issue of Jesus Christ to matter to them now because there is eternal separation coming for those who don't receive Jesus. If Luke were here, there are a bunch of questions I'd ask him about this particular episode of Paul's life, but here's what we know from what we see. First, God is always busy accomplishing his purposes. Second, his promises will not fail. Third, his providence is on the move all the time and we are invited to be a part of it and to enjoy it. Fourth, because God is so powerful and so gracious, he can use anything that we've consecrated for that providence, whether it's our tongue, our time, our money, our home, our sufferings, our triumphs, our friends, our enemies. Fifth, no city is too far gone and no person is too far gone to be saved by the gospel if they are willing. Look at Sosthenes. He was not only the new leader of the synagogue after Crispus became a Christian, but he was probably the representative bringing the case against Paul. So he's the chief enemy against Paul in this situation. Their effort was a failure when he tried to bring this case against Paul. And so he was immediately punished for it violently. It reminds us of how under the Hussein regime in Iraq, Olympic athletes there were tortured and imprisoned if they would lose a match, right? That kind of thing is happening here. But here's the great part. When Paul wrote his first letter to the Christians in Corinth, this is how he opens it. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother, Sosthenes. That's pretty neat. We do have to speculate a little bit, but it seems very probable, very likely that this is the very same man. Look at what God can do. Even in a city like Corinth, even when we're on low supply, even when we're discouraged or scared or feeling alone, even when the powers that be are against us, even still God is able to do dramatically powerful things that last a lifetime, more than a lifetime, last past our lives far into the future. Paul had a dream one night in which Jesus said, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking. And then a promise was made for Paul specifically. But that charge that he was given, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, that can be our charge as well as we live out this life for God's purposes, knowing he has much to do, many to save, and no end of options when it comes to using our lives as we submit to him.